Back in high school, I was in a musical, one, one musical, and that was it. And the musical was Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Yeah, some of you know it. Others of you are like, you were a massive nerd, and that's true. I was, at least for that one musical. And I, I wanted to be a brother, but I wasn't a brother. Uh, I was a suitor. I was the bad guy. I was the guy that, that was the audience didn't like. I was one of them, at least. Uh, one of my best friends was a brother, and he was like the star of the show, and he was kind of the guy that I always wanted to be, but yeah. As that musical went on, though, there was somebody else whose role I wanted a little bit more, because uh, one of my other friends was on the stage crew. And the thing about the stage crew was they didn't have to be at all of the rehearsals that we had to be at. They didn't have to memorize their lines. They didn't have to do any dancing whatsoever, none. They didn't have to wear makeup. And I was jealous of my friend who was on the stage crew. I was like, that guy hasn't made. He shows up in black jeans and a black t-shirt and nobody even knows that he's on stage and he gets to, to be a part of all of this. But though he wasn't on the center stage, though he wasn't a brother or a suitor or anything else, his role was vitally important because without him out there doing his job setting the stage, the rest of the action made no sense. In our section of Mark tonight, we're going to see Jesus set the stage for what's coming. We're going to see Jesus go out and, and begin to prepare his disciples and us as we get to eavesdrop on all of this act activity in these conversations for what's coming. And what's coming is, after a brief interlude where Jesus goes north of the Sea of Galilee for a, a few days, what's coming is he's about to set his face towards Jerusalem. He's about to make a beeline for the place where he would be betrayed by one of these 12 that are following him so closely, where he would be handed over to the hands of, of lawless men, as Peter would put it, and he would be crucified for our sins. So tonight, Jesus sets the stage for that, because Jesus knows that's coming, but none of the rest of his followers have any idea what's in store for them. So Jesus wants them to be ready. He wants them to understand this so that after everything's said and done, they can look back on everything that's been happening and understand it more clearly because the stage was set by what Jesus is about to tell them. Take your Bibles and open up to Mark chapter 8 if you're not already there. Mark chapter 8, we left off after verse 9. And so as we pick up in verse 10, it says, Immediately he got into the boat with the disciples and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. And if you're confused about where, what or where Dalmanutha is, welcome to the, the, the party. Nobody really knows where this is. There's a, a couple of, of options, uh, another area called Magadan or Magdala that are on the kind of northwestern edge of the Sea of Galilee, and that's kind of where we think that they ended up. But just a, a, a district that Mark notes there, and this is, remember, right on the heels of the feeding of the 4,000. Well, the Pharisees come there, and they don't like Jesus. And we see that beginning in verse 11. They begin to argue with Jesus, and they're wanting a, a sign from heaven to test him, as though they hadn't already heard about, and probably some of them even witnessed enough of these signs already. And he says in verse 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit. Just the, the, the grief that Jesus feels over their hardness of heart and their unbelief. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got in the boat again and went to the other side. On the boat, the disciples realize, oh man, we don't have any bread. Now remember, they had just seen Jesus feed 4,000 people. And prior to that, Jesus had 
fed five to, to anywhere from five, some estimates as, as high as 15,000 people. And so they're on the boat and they're going, did you bring bread? I didn't bring bread. Man, we're going to starve to death on this boat ride across the Sea of Galilee, which wouldn't have taken more than a handful of hours. So this is not an emergency. But Jesus looks at them and he says, do you guys not yet understand? And he begins to confront their lack of faith. And he calls them, he says in verse 17, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet see is the, the word? That's going to play a, an important part of the next encounter that he's going to have. But he's asking the disciples, do you not have spiritual sight right now? Do you not see what's going on? Do you not understand what I'm doing here? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see and ears do you not hear and, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And for the, the, the seven, for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said, do you not yet understand? He's trying to lead them to, to, to realize something about him. He's trying to help them understand and perceive what they don't yet see. And then notice, as Mark arranges the content, he does this very intentionally. Look at the next encounter that Jesus has in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man. So Jesus is on the boat with his disciples going, don't you see? And then Mark introduces this scenario with this blind man. And there's going to be two blind men that, that bookend our section of Mark tonight. And this one from Beth Bethsaida is brought to Jesus. And they took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Jesus did. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And you might think, man, spitting on the eyes, that's really gross. Granted, but that wasn't uncommon at that day. People would do things like that to try to clear away the, the, the dust and the debris and things like that from the eyes, okay? So this is not like Jesus is just randomly like just spitting in this guy's face and he's like, whoa, what are you doing? Why are you spitting on me? But he says, do you see anything? And notice the man says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Okay, two-stage healing. Did Jesus need to do it in two stages? Is, it was Jesus like, oh man, I got to try a different cheat code to get this, get this guy's eyesight back because I clearly didn't get it the first time. No, Jesus didn't fail the first time. He did this with purpose. Jesus, everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus said had purpose and intentionality. And so Jesus heals this guy in two stages. Why? Well, who was with Jesus at the time? The crowds weren't because remember, Jesus took this guy by the hand and led him away from all the crowds. So who would have been with Jesus? The same that were on the boat the 12, his closest followers. So Jesus is using this man's blindness as an object lesson to go after the 12, to say what you see dimly, what you think you understand now, there's going to come a moment when you see fully and see clearly. So Jesus gives sight to this blind man physically as he's confronting the spiritual blindness there, even of the disciples. And then it, it goes on from there in verse 27, and we get one of the climaxes for the disciples. When Jesus, on his way with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, which is northwest of uh, the Sea of Galilee, closer to the, the Mediterranean. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? You remember back in chapter four when Jesus had calmed the storm? You remember the disciples, the question that they asked after the storm was calmed? What question did they ask? They said, who is this? Okay, now Jesus is the one asking the question. And he says, who do people say that I am? And he starts at that level. 
He starts at the, the, just the general populace level. Who do people say that I am? What are you hearing? And they told him, well, some say you're John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. Now notice what Jesus does. After they've given what everybody else says, he says, okay, but who do you say that I am? Now he's driving it down. He's again trying to lead the disciples to understand who he is and to be all in and following him. Not following the concept of what they want him to be, but following who he actually is. And Peter steps up and Peter confesses. And it's this great statement when he says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You are God's anointed one. You are the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. You're the one. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him, which he does that a lot in the Gospels. And you might think, well, why does he do that? And the reason is because it wasn't yet his time. The Gospel of John brings that out over and over and over again. It was not yet his hour. It was not yet his time. It was not yet his time. So Jesus was not looking for this to be publicized broad and wide at this point in time because he didn't want the whole nation of Israel to come and grab him and try to make him their king because that wasn't the type of Messiah they came to be initially. He came to be a suffering Messiah. And that's where he's trying to get the disciples to at this point. So Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, yes, but don't tell anyone what you've heard. Verse 31, it continues. And notice where it goes to. It goes from this high point with Peter's confession to now Jesus is all of a sudden talking about dying. It says in verse 31, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and then after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And notice Peter, the one who had just said, you're the Christ. Peter goes from one of the highest moments of his, of his career at this point to the lowest moment. Because Peter hears Jesus talking about death and Peter's going, didn't you hear what I just said? I said, you're the Christ. You're surely not going to die. This is not going to happen, Jesus. What are you, quit talking about death. That's not what the Messiah is going to do. Haven't you read the Old Testament prophecies, Jesus? Don't you know what the Messiah is supposed to do? This is Peter rebuking Jesus. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, did, did Satan inhabit the person of Peter? No. Satan, the title means adversary. So Jesus is confronting Peter saying, you are acting as though you are one of Satan's. You are acting as an adversary because you are opposing the will of God. And Jesus has made it very clear that he is there to do the will of God. In fact, in John's gospel, he says, I can do nothing of my own accord, but only that which I see the Father doing. He's there to follow the Father's will and to commit himself to the Father's will. And Peter here wants to, to, to stop him. And here's the deal, y'all. Peter gets a bad rap because he's the one that speaks. But all the other disciples would have been thinking the same thing. They would have been sitting there thinking, what is he talking about dying? And we know this because this is the first of three times in our section that Jesus is going to talk about his death. And they don't get it on any of them. And we need to cut them some slack because they didn't go to Awana growing up. They didn't, they didn't have all the memory verses. They didn't know John 3, 16. They, didn't, they had no concept of a suffering Messiah. And that's the whole point. But none of them were as bold or as foolish maybe as Peter was. 
to speak up and say, surely this is not going to happen. I don't know what you're talking about, but this is not going to happen. And so he rebukes Peter in front of everybody. And then Jesus begins to, 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 to pivot to the, the broader group there because here's the deal. Yes, Jesus is, is acknowledging, I am the Christ, but you need to understand what type of Christ I am, that my, my Messiahship is gonna involve suffering first. And then he's about to say, and you know what? If you wanna follow me, if you really are committed to being one of my followers, going to mean that you're going to suffer too. Look at where he continues to go in verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He said to them, to the crowd, look, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, his instrument of execution. A cross was meant to do one thing. It was meant to kill the person in the most humiliating way possible. And so Jesus says, let him deny himself. And take up his cross with all the degradation and humiliation associated with it and follow me. Jesus is shattering paradigms and expectations here. The disciples were thinking he was going to be one type of a, of a savior. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm not going to be the type of Messiah that you want me to be. At least not right away. Because first what stands in front of me is the cross. And if you want to follow me, it stands in front of you too. For whoever, verse 35, would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples at this point. At this point. They would have been sitting there thinking, what are we supposed to do with all of this? How do we process all of this? Are, did we make a mistake? Are we sure this is the one? And that's why what happens next happens next. As we get into chapter 9, he said to them, Truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What does that mean? The kingdom of God, it's, it's yet future. So how, what's he talking about here? Well, I think that the best understanding of this is he's talking about the, the, the already not yet inauguration that, that takes place at the resurrection. And he's saying some are going to see this. They're going to see the resurrection, the overcoming, the power of God, the power of the kingdom of God at the resurrection. But then notice what happens. After six days, Jesus takes with him three of them, Peter, James, and John. And I wonder what happened in the interim, in those six days. The conversations that they must have been having together while Jesus was asleep or while Jesus was off doing something else? Have we made a mistake? Should we go back to fishing? What's he talking about taking up a, a, a cross? How do we talk him out of this? How do we talk some sense into him? He takes these three then six days later up high on a high mountain by themselves and he was, here's the word, transfigured before them. It means to be transformed completely. That It's, it's a full transformation that's taking place. And it says, and his clothes became radiant. So it's not just his person, but even his clothes become radiantly, intensely white as no one on earth could ever bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's a good thing that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. In other words, Rabbi, we want to stay here. This is good. This is awesome. We're with you. We're with Moses. We're with Elijah. What more do we need? Can we just hang out here for a little while. 
But Peter didn't understand why God was doing what he was doing here, why Jesus had taken them up on the mountain, because it was for what comes next. Remember, they're questioning probably amongst themselves, saying, is this still really, is this the one? Should we follow him? Well, he's brought up, he's transfigured before them, and then look what happens. A cloud overshadowed them, verse 7, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. You see the validation from the father to the son? in front of these disciples, to say, no, no, don't worry, don't question, don't second guess, he's the one. They go back down the mountain, and he charges them again, hey, don't tell anybody what you've seen. Why? Again, because it wasn't his time to be the glorious conquering king, but to go and be the humble suffering servant. And so he charges them, hey, don't tell people what you just saw Verse 14, they get to the bottom of the mountain and there's a great crowd around and the scribes and, and the crowd are arguing and it turns out the disciples, the other disciples are there too and Jesus comes upon them and they all rush to him and it turns out there's a, a boy possessed by a demon that nobody can help. And the, the disciples were trying to pray and the, the, the scribes and Pharisees were trying to do their thing and, and nobody could do anything to help him. And Jesus confronts the lack of faith. He says, how long am I gonna be with you? And you're still not going to believe. And then Jesus takes care of the, the boy's demon and casts this demon out. And the disciples say, why couldn't we do it? And he says, because this one can only come out by prayer. He's reminding the disciples to put their confidence and their trust in him and showing them that they need him. This whole first section here has been Jesus reorienting expectations. And, and that's it's so important for us to know and understand and hold on to because we can have expectations of God and Jesus ourselves that aren't necessarily the right expectations still today. And we can want things from him and look for things from him. And, and that can be, as, as long as we're getting those things, then we're, we're all in with Jesus. Yes, I will follow Jesus so long as my expectations are being met. But then when our expectations begin to fall through or not be met the way we want them to, then we can begin to waver in our commitment. And we begin to drift and separate ourselves a little bit more. And we begin to question, is this really worth it? Like I'm sure a lot of the disciples were at this point. Guys, we've got to be fully committed to who Jesus is because Jesus doesn't hide that. And as Jesus told his disciples, you want to come after me? And you got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That's the call for us too. Our first point tonight is this. Fight the temptation to be a fair-weather disciple. Fight the temptation to be a fair-weather disciple. In John's gospel, Jesus is teaching the, the crowds, and there's a ton of people that are following around him and flocking to him, and, and he's teaching them, and he's instructing them, and, and, and then he begins to teach some difficult things, some hard things, things like this. And the crowd begins to dissipate and and. and filter away because they realize, man, it's not worth it. We're not really all in. And Jesus looks at his disciples. He says, do you want to go away too? And y'all, that's kind of what this passage does for us tonight is it challenges us and calls us to question, do we want to go away too? We've got to fight the temptation to be a fair weather disciple. I mean, what a roller coaster ride the disciples have been on, right? You've got Peter's great confession and then Jesus is talking about dying and then Peter's rebuked for saying what everybody else was thinking and then Jesus goes on and says, hey, you want to follow me? It's, it, you got to take up your cross and you got to deny yourself and you got to be willing to be embarrassed by the world so that you're not embarrassed by me. 
And then Peter, James, and John are taken up on the mountain where there's, whoa, Jesus in his full glory. And there's Elijah and there's Moses and this is awesome. And then they, they start to go down the mountain and Jesus is like, you got to keep this under wraps because it's not yet the time. And then they get down to the bottom of the mountain and the disciples are having trouble to cast out a demon. And he's going, where's your faith? I mean, just the, the, the ups and downs of all of this that we're reading right here, that's all taking place. And that's one of the advantages in us studying this so quickly and taking these big chunks is we get to see this kind of more in real time rather than a week here and a week here and a week here. This is a tumultuous season for the disciples as they're trying to figure out who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? And he's trying to help them get there. And one of the things he's trying to help them see is, man, discipleship is not always going to look like you want it to look. And that's what we have to understand too, right? There are going to be times where your parents' marriage falls apart and you're sitting there going, that's not supposed to happen in my family. That happens to other people's families. There are going to be times when your family goes through financial hardship and life is not comfortable. There's going to be times where you go through financial hardship. There's going to be times where you're going to battle loneliness. You're going to say, man, is this what being a a disciple looks like? There's going to be times when, when you are hurt and betrayed by friends. People that you trusted going to say, man, is this what discipleship looks like? And there are going to be times when you're hurt by enemies. You're going to say, man, is this what discipleship looks like? And that's where you have to remember, y'all, that Jesus is not just an earthly Messiah. If he is, he's a horrible Messiah. He's not about making our life better now. That's not to say that there aren't blessings to following Jesus here and now, but it's not chiefly about the here and now. And in some ways, y'all, following Jesus here and now makes the here and now harder than it would be if you didn't follow him. But following Jesus is all about not the here and now, but the then and there. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Why do you think this is weird, Peter's saying? This is the same guy who said, you're the Christ. And then when Jesus began talking about suffering, was like, stop it. Now he's saying to Christians, why do you think it's weird when you suffer? But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, that's where our our focus needs to be. That's why we follow Jesus is because he's an eternal Messiah. He's a Messiah of of God's glory, not earth's glory, not man's glory. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Why? Because you know what's coming. You know that there's reward in heaven. You know that there's a day coming when all of our suffering is gone and we get to be with Jesus. But man, following him right now may mean some suffering. You might have thought about what that suffering might look like for you in your future, but maybe you're going to lose a job someday because your company is going to start doing things that you know as a Christian that you can't abide by. And you're going to have to make a decision that's going to say, man, I don't know how I'm going to support my family, but I know I cannot in good conscience continue to work for this employer. You may be discriminated against 
for a promotion or for a spot in a graduate program because you claim Christ and won't compromise. You could have a neighbor vandalize your property because you have a bumper sticker on the back of your car that says, Compass Bible Church. You could have friends pull away once they find out that you're a serious Christian. You will absolutely 100% lose more and more political standing for, and your religious freedoms in this country as they begin to dissipate faster and faster and faster. And you could face physical harm because of your faith. And so look, if you're in it to follow Jesus because you want none of that, then I gotta say, you're not in it for the right reasons. Discipleship is all-out commitment that does not waver no matter what comes, including all of this and potentially more. And so you might be saying, well, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Mark chapter 8, verses 35 through 38. Let me just say this again. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. The question is not, is it worth it to suffer? The question is, is it worth it to give up what we have in Christ in order to avoid suffering? Fight the temptation to be a fair-weathered disciple. He, he picks up again, and we continue, starting in verse 30 of chapter 9, all the way down through the end of chapter 9. Here Jesus begins preparing them again for, for more of these realities when it comes to this discipleship. Okay, so what is discipleship going to look like? And it begins in verses 30 through 32 with him foretelling his death again. And yet this time it's not at the hands of the Jews, it's, it's into the hands of men. So Jesus is broadening this to just talk about the, the fact that this is a, a turning over of the Son by the Father to, to mankind who are going to put him to death. Verses 33 through 37, just like when Peter didn't get it, the disciples, again, they don't get it because they continue on the road as they're coming now down to Capernaum and they're going to stop really quick at Capernaum and then they're going to continue on down and go all the way down to Jerusalem. So they're, they've been up in Caesarea Philippi, now they're coming back down through Galilee and they're going to go down all the way down to Jerusalem. So they're passing through Capernaum where it had been Jesus' home base and he had done so many great and amazing things there. And there's something to even notice now that they're just simply passing through, that Jesus is now transitioning and his focus is now somewhere else. His focus is on the cross. But as they're going down and as they're passing through Capernaum, he asks them a question. He says, hey, what were you guys talking about on the way? Remember, this is God asking the question. He knows the answer. But they don't want to say it. Why don't they want to say it? Because Jesus had just been talking about dying, being crucified. And they're in the back going, dude, no, you're not the best. I'm the best. You're not the greatest disciple. I'm the greatest. He called me first. Where were you? You were over with the fishing. You're lucky I came to find you. Otherwise, you'd still be over there under that tree sleeping. They're arguing about foolish things. They're arguing about their status in Jesus' group. And so, again, they don't get discipleship. They're looking at discipleship as a path to glory, not a path to suffering. And Jesus is trying to help them to see, look, it's, it's not a path to glory, but it is likely a path to suffering. Look at verse 35. He says this, says it this way in this statement. He said to them, if anyone would be first 
He must be last of all and servant of all. Talking about a paradigm shift. We hear that and we're like, oh, okay, yeah, we're tracking. Because you grew up in the church, if you did. And so you've been hearing about last is first, first is last, right? You've been hearing about that. But man, outside of this context, that statement doesn't make any sense. You want to be first, you be servant and last of all. No, you try that in the world and you're just going to get stepped on. In fact, even Plato, the philosopher, once said this, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? That's what our default is. But Jesus is trying to help us to see that the, the, the paradigm of discipleship is it turns the world system on its head. You want to be first, you be the servant of all. And then he held, holds up welcoming a, a child and he says, this is a good thing. Welcome the children. And you might be like, well, yeah, I like kids. I'm going to welcome kids too. They're cute and everything. Don't think about it that way. What, what would a child offer? What would a child provide for the, the disciples? What benefit could the child bring to the disciples? Nothing. Nothing, right? And so Jesus is saying, you need to welcome the least of them. You need to focus on those that can't do anything for your status and prestige. That's what it looks like to be a servant of all. Verses 38 through 41, the disciples then are still struggling with this whole concept. And John goes up to him and says, teacher, changing the subject. uh, Hey, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. But Jesus said, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon afterwards be able to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The disciples are jealous. They're like, tell them to stop. They're not part of us. We're the ones that are with you in in casting out demons and healing people. Tell those guys to stop what they're doing. See their jealousy creeping in, their pride creeping in. They're arguing about who's the greatest. They're telling Jesus, can you tell these guys to stop? We're the the ministry show in town, not them. Jesus says, hey man, it's, it's, it's bigger than you think it is, is what he's trying to get them to see there. And then he jumps into verses 42 through 50, and he goes after the the pridefulness of of not treating sin radically enough. And he does so by saying, you know, again, of the children, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea if he were drowned. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell and the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. By the way, can we just see Jesus teaching on hell here? This is not a temporal place. This is not the doctrine of eternal destruction or the, the not eternal destruction, the doctrine of, of destruction after death, which some professing Christians will try to argue that once you die, you are simply destroyed and that's it. There's no conscious eternal suffering. That is not what Jesus teaches about hell. It's an unquenchable fire. The worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. In other words, be all in is what he's saying here. And be at peace with one another. So how does the sin fit into what he's been talking about here? If it's in this way, it's, it's still the same root problem, and that's pride. When we look at sin in our life and we think, well, it's no big deal. She's saying, no, it's, it's a big deal. So much so that if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. 
Is Jesus being serious there? No, but he's, he's going after with hyperbole the, the radical nature that we need to deal with sin. Sin is a big deal. And, and the pride that can creep into our hearts that says, man, it's not that big of a deal. Like, yeah, there's sin, but you know what? You know what? After all, the, the Jesus and the, the cross and, and grace and everything, it's fine. He's confronting that mentality and saying, it's a, a threat to your life. Cut it off, throw it from you. So Jesus, in this second section, preparing the disciples for following him in discipleship is really after the area of humility with them. Focusing on and calling them to serve and to be a humble servant. Remember, that's one of Mark's themes. Jesus as the suffering servant. And that's, that's what we're seeing with Jesus here. That he's not the glorious conquering king that he will be one day when he comes back. But first he came to be the suffering, humble servant. And as such, if we're going to follow him, we need a point number two tonight. Fight the temptation to be a prideful disciple. We need to fight the temptation to be a prideful disciple. This can be a subtle temptation. Here's what this might look like. We look down at another church or ministry in our city because they aren't as big as we are. Or because their doctrine's a little bit different than ours is. Not aberrant, not disparate. They're not preaching a false gospel. They're just teaching differently than we do. And we might begin to look down at them and say they're not as good as we are. Or looking down on another Christian who may not know as much as you do. I can't believe they didn't know where to turn to find the book of Malachi. Who doesn't know that? Lots of people. Or maybe it's looking down on an unbeliever because of their sin. Or maybe it's judging every sermon that you listen to based on whether or not you get anything out of it. Or maybe it's thinking that you're holier than someone else because you're single and are fully devoted to Jesus. At the end of the day, y'all, being a prideful disciple is an oxymoron. There should be no such thing as a prideful disciple. It shouldn't be possible. It doesn't make any sense. Almost like this. That tiny little squirt over the football, that's me in eighth grade. Yeah, I I played eighth grade football. And for whatever reason, I was all of 135, 140 pounds sopping wet. My coaches were like, yeah, let's put him on the offensive line. Let's make him the center. If you don't know anything about football, usually the big guys are the guys on the offensive line. Like usually, like, like, like number 29 there is bigger than me. Certainly this number 12 kid in the, standing up there, like this kid lined up in front of me was about to just destroy me. He was going to kill me and just, just he was going to knock me back through the opposite goalposts. Um, there I am again. They're right there trying to look big next to a kid that actually looks like he believes belongs on the football field. It didn't make any sense. I don't, I, I don't know what they were thinking. And then by the grace of God, I thought I was going to play high school football and got stress fractures in my back. I was like, man, I had a career-ending injury, so I can't play. <laughs> but pride in the Christian's life makes less sense than that does. It, it's out of place when our Savior came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, how can we take a posture of pridefulness as his followers? How can we think that we're better as his followers?
Again, even in that last section, we can become prideful more personally when we just put up with sin in our lives. Yeah, I know I shouldn't look on that account on Instagram, but you know what? Jesus died on the cross for my sins, so I'm forgiven, so it's, it's really okay. No, it's not. It's not, and your mindset is prideful to say that. If you think, yeah, I know I shouldn't get so angry at people when I'm driving, but you know what? Jesus died on the cross for my sins, so it's, it's okay. No, it's, it's not okay. It's not okay. To be comfortable with sin in your life is to be prideful. We need to be humble followers of Jesus, seeking that rightful place as servant of all, like he called us to. You want to be great? Be last and servant of all, while always remaining overwhelmingly, guys, grateful for the cross. Thankful for the cross. Our final section, which is Mark chapter 10, Jesus gets into what it looks like to follow him with everything. And he starts by talking about marriage and teaching against divorce. The Pharisees come up to ask him a question in verse 2, and he says, is it lawful for a man to, uh, he's down in Judea now, he's down near Jerusalem at this point, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Then Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh in God's eyes, in God's economy. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. He's teaching on divorce and saying, you want to be all in in following me. It factors into your marriage too, that your marriage is all about what God wants. Are there exception clauses to divorce? Uh, Technically, yes. In the case of adultery is the most common one. And then case of abandonment. When somebody abandons you and walks away from you completely. But can I just tell you guys as a pastor, even in the cases of the most significant and severe adultery, our first counsel is going to be we want to see reconciliation take place if possible. I said that that's insane. But ultimately at the end of the day, it's because the marriage is not about necessarily the two individuals in it, but them modeling Christ in the church. And Moses allowed for the divorce to take place, but, but notice why he allowed it. It wasn't because God thought it was a good idea. Because of what? Because of their sinfulness. Because of their hardness of heart, their stubbornness. Moses allowed this. So Jesus is just teaching, you want to be my follower? Come follow me. It's going to be radical. Then he goes on and he talks about following Jesus with our family. It says they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Like I said, during this time in this society, people did not look at children as this cute little Instagram-worthy accessory. They looked at kids and they were like, When you grow up, you can contribute and have something to offer to society. Jesus is saying, Hey, you know what? You want to follow me? Start thinking about these children the way that the father thinks about these children. Start looking at them in a different way. 
And then verses 17 through 31, one of the more familiar passages, we get the rich young man. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Man, this, imagine the disciples being there like, okay, this is a good start, right? This guy runs up, he falls on his knees, he's showing deference to Jesus, respect and reverence, and he asks him this question, and he even calls him a good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's like a soft toss for Jesus. It's like, well, let me tell you. Partners chapter one, go through it and then come back and talk to me. No, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He's, again, causing the disciples to go, huh. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, is that the way to eternal life? East-west. It's been a while since we've done the east-west-north-south thing. We're going east-west hard on that one right? No one is justified by works of the law. Jesus knows that. So what's he doing? Well, he's going after this man's real problem here in a minute. Because he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. He's thinking, this is awesome. Maybe I'm already in. This is going to be great. It's not going to cost me a thing. Yeah. And Jesus looking at him, notice this, loved him. Pay attention to that, please. Jesus love for this man. Because what he's about to say next, you might go, well, that doesn't sound loving, but it's absolutely loving. It's absolutely loving. And y'all, when Jesus presses in on the things you don't want to let go of, guess what? It's him loving you. Because he looks at this man out of love and he says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Question, are we saved when we sell everything that we have and give, that, give it to the poor? No. So what gives Jesus? What Jesus was doing here out of love was he was putting his finger on this man's idol. He was putting the finger on the thing that was keeping him from being a fully devoted disciple and follower of him, which was his possessions and his wealth. And Jesus knew that if this man responded and said, okay, I'll, I'll do it and went and did that, it would be because he was fully in and trusting Jesus and all in with being a follower of Christ. And that was going to overflow into the decisions that he made in his life. Jesus is not preaching a works-based salvation here. He's going after the idol in this man's heart and putting the finger on his idol and saying, you need to let go of this. After this, Jesus, in verses 32 through 34, gets into the, his most specific prediction of his crucifixion, his third and final. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid. And taking the 12, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And you think, okay, finally the disciples are going to get it. Nope. Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him on the heels of this and say, hey, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Uh, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one on your left in glory. When you enter in and, and when, when your palace is built, like King David's used to be. I, I know that's in your plans. You're going to get in here to Jerusalem and knock some Roman heads together and they're going to get out of here. We're going to build a palace. 
We want to sit on your right hand and your left hand. It'll be Jesus and the sons of thunder. It'll be awesome. It'll be like a whole movie we'll make out of it. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In other words, Jesus says, you want to sit with me in glory? I'm going to glory, but you have no idea what that's going to look like because the path between, for, for me to get to glory goes through the cross and death. And the glory is not here. It's going to be there. So he asked them, are you ready for that? They have no idea. They say, yeah, 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 we're in it. We're, we're, we're good. We're, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. In other words, they're going to die. And even alluding to the fact that, that these disciples are going to die martyrs' deaths. All of them save Judas. And John died in exile, somewhat of a martyr's death. He said, you will drink the cup that I drink. and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But look, to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by the Father. And then look at verse 41. In case we're thinking that the other 10 are fine, they hear this and they're like, wait a second, who says you get to sit there? They're arguing again right after Jesus has talked about not the, the, the glory, but the suffering that awaited him. In verse 42, Jesus called them and said to them, you know that those who are, in, who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great, he reiterates this, must be your servant. And whoever would be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, these disciples wanted to follow Jesus and they wanted glory. They wanted to follow Jesus and they wanted power. They wanted to follow Jesus. They wanted prestige. They wanted status. And Jesus was saying, you can't have both. Which leads us to our final fight in this passage. And it's third point tonight. It's fight the temptation to be a divided disciple. Fight the temptation to be a divided disciple. What does discipleship look like? Jesus has been setting the stage. It looks like we're not, we don't want to be fair weather. We don't want to just be all in as long as things are going okay for us. We, we also don't want to be prideful disciples. Now we also want to make sure that we're not being divided disciples. In other words, that we are committing and we are all in with Jesus. That we're not like the rich young ruler who went away sad because he had great possessions. The possessions weren't the problem. The, the possessiveness of the possessions were the problem. They possessed him that was the problem. They were an idol that were in between him and following Jesus and he wasn't willing to let it go. We got to make sure we don't have any of that in our lives, anywhere in our lives, that we are fully all in to following Jesus. When I got married, my life and routine and everything changed for the better. I didn't just add Amanda to my life and keep living the way I was living before my whole existence altered because now I was a, a husband. So my entertainment choices changed. I learned what HGTV is in Food Network. And I learned that people watch people cook food that you don't then get to eat on TV after that. My, my food choices changed. I, as a, I lived as a bachelor by myself for six months before I got married. And I probably kept the local McDonald's and Taco Bell in business. And they like named meals after me on the, the, the there was like, the, oh, the, you want the, the PJ, the number two? Okay, we got it. We're, we, we'll make it. Amanda came in and, and she's a better cook than McDonald's. And so my food choices changed. My furniture choices changed. Y'all, when I got married, it, it, well, before I got married, when I moved into my apartment, I had a futon with no mattress. Like it was the wooden frame. And I just went out to Target and got some like cheap throw pillows and threw them on 
And that was my cushions. And I, I was a youth pastor during the time. And I would play FIFA soccer with the youth group students. And we would just sit on this wooden frame futon on these pillows. And I had nothing on the walls. I had like a, a, a full-size bed on like the steel metal frame that always hits you in the shin. And it just, it's like regressive sanctification when that happens when you're putting the sheets on the bed. But you guys know what I'm talking about. And there was no, like it was just a gray sheet. And I had like a blue quilt or something. I had nothing. And so Amanda came in and, and I, my furniture choices changed, my decor choices changed, but my point is, it, it impacted my whole life. And, and some couples, not this one, but, but some couples have, the, the, the guy in the relationship has like his man cave. My man card is, is well intact that I don't feel like I need that, nor do I have space for it. I've got too many children running around my house. But the whole concept of the man cave, which is supposed to be this place, is like, okay, look, my wife can have everything else, but not this area. This area is still going to be mine. It's going to be like the bachelor cave where I can still put posters of Tom Brady up on the wall and like, you know, popcorn's on the floor and I can sit in my Barca lounger and pick my nose. Whatever guys do in their man cave. I don't know. I don't have one. There's no sin cave when it comes to following Jesus. Okay. There's no area of your life that you get to say, you can't have this. Jesus, you can have everything else, but not this. That was the rich young ruler's problem. And that's the problem that Jesus was trying to help the disciples understand that they needed to avoid like the plague. That they couldn't be more about their, their power, their status, their prestige than they were about Jesus' power, status, and prestige. They couldn't be more about them not suffering than, Jesus, than, than following Jesus into suffering. Jesus was trying to say, if you want to be my follower, be my follower. But be all in in being my follower. Don't hold something back. There's no area over our lives that we should not cede full control to Jesus. There's a great theologian who once said, there's not a single inch in all of God's creation over which he does not declare mine There's not a single inch in all of God's creation over which he does not declare mine. I want to end. I, I told you this section of Mark is bookended by two blind men. We come to the second blind man. I'll end with this because I think this is a parable for what following Jesus really looks like. When we're taken from a state of blindness, not literal blindness, but spiritual blindness, given sight so that we will come and follow Jesus. Pick up in verse 46 as we close. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting at the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith is to bring to Jesus. And we need him. And that moment that I hope all of you have experienced, and if not, maybe tonight's the night that you cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, Rabbi, I wish to see. I want to see. That's the cry of the heart of the the regenerate sinner who is coming to Jesus in faith. Jesus, I want to see. Remember at the beginning of our time tonight, all the way back in chapter 8, when Jesus was with his disciples saying, do you not yet see? Rabbi, I wish to see. And if you come to Jesus with that cry, repenting of your sins and putting your trust in him as your savior, then Jesus will respond the way he responded to Bartimaeus, saying, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight, and notice what Bartimaeus does, he follows him. He follows him, and that's what Christianity is. God saves us, redeems us, gives us the ability to be able to see, and then calls us to follow him. And that following him is called discipleship. And that's what Jesus has been explaining to us in this section. What does it look like to follow Jesus? He's setting the stage for what's coming. Next time we're looking at the triumphal entry and we're getting into the, 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 the death of Christ, right? He's setting the stage for all of that. So that when that happens, it'll make even more sense for us as to what that means for our lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the, the cross. We thank you that we have eternal life, that if we are in Christ, that our, our sight, spiritually speaking, has been restored and that we are forgiven. God, we pray that you would help us to see more clearly day in and day out what it looks like to follow you. We pray that our, our misunderstandings, as we think about what discipleship may look like conceptually in our minds. I pray that it would look like what you have laid it out to look like in the the word. God, I pray that we would not be those disciples that are fair-weather disciples that are willing to follow you so long as life is okay and goes easy for us. God, I pray that we would not be prideful disciples, that we would understand that we are to follow your example, that our, our Savior, our Messiah, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I pray that we would embrace a similar mindset to say our Our role here on this planet is to serve, to be the servant of all. And God, I pray that you would guard us against that temptation to be a divided disciple. That when we feel you press in on an idol in our lives, that we would be quick to say, it's it's yours, God, I don't want it. And we would let it go, counting the cost of discipleship, saying following you is worth more than holding on to that area that we would live lives over which every square inch of our life is yours, that we would cede control over every desire, every ambition, every dream that we have to you and to submit it to your will, that we would live lives saturated by a desire to glorify you in everything, Lord, that we would be genuine, true, faithful disciples. Help us, Lord, to do that. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.